Now entering Nerdist.com. Live panels coming up, including this weekend, which you can stream from your home. Uh, it's the L.A. PodFest panel. And I can't tell you who's on it, but we're going to be talking about Luke Cage. That's all I can say. Uh, it should be a fun lineup. we got some cool people involved. Lots of old friends will be joining us. It is Saturday, September 19th, 2 p.m. as part of L.A. PodFest. Uh, the best thing is that you can stream it. If you go to LAPodFest.com, buy the streaming option, and use the code WRITER, W-R-I-T-E-R, for $5 off. You can stream the whole festival, and it's a bunch of awesome comedy things, as well as our dumb writers panel. Uh, we've also got September 21st in Los Angeles at Largo at the Coronet. Family Men, Masters of the Family sitcom with Norman Lear. I don't know why this isn't sold out already. We got Norman Lear, uh, Phil Rosenthal, who created Everybody Loves Raymond, Steve Levitan, who co-created Modern Family, and Norman Lear. Did I mention? So come watch us talk for an hour and bring your questions. We're going to have some stuff to give away, as we will at all of the panels, including September 27th in L.A. Uh, Jason Rothenberg, creator of The 100, will be there, as will writers from Criminal Minds, iZombie, How I Met Your Mother, Chuck, some other stuff. Uh, should be a fun night. That's over at Meltdown. And then in Boston on November 14th, the postponed Joe Hill uh, conversation will be happening to benefit 826 Boston. All the live panels benefit 826LA. Um, come out and join us. Uh, for all the information, go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. I'll keep tumbling about this thing, uh, and I really urge you to join us. These things are better when you are there to ask questions. Hope to see you at them. As ever, thanks for listening. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Good. Uh, all right, this is it. This is how we start. I'm talking with Stephen Knight. Uh, thank you for taking the time. No problem at all. It's a pleasure. All right, let's talk about the new movie. Let's get it out of the way. Okay. Because uh, I have a lot of things I want to ask you. <laughs> okay. um, uh, Pawn Sacrifice is the new film. Mm-hmm. How did this come to you? Was this uh, were you with this film from the beginning, or did you inherit it? Where, it I was approached it? by Toby, yeah. and we were in the meeting talking about something else, and then this came up—the idea of, of the Bobby Fisher story—and it was always in the back of my mind when I was a kid. I remember being shocked when um, the first item on BBC News for a week was chess, and uh, remembered the, the Cold War at its height, and suddenly. The Cold War was being fought at a table by two individual people. You know, it was so um, sort of perfect in a way that if you wrote it as a drama, you would think it's stretching credulity. Um, and it always stayed with me. And then when it was mentioned, I just knew that it that the ending at least would be in place. That it's a perfect ending. Um, and then. As ever with these things, I wrote a draft, wrote another draft, lots of time passed. Um, you know, it's a bit like fishing, you leave it out there and see what happens, and then eventually that miracle happens where the finance is in place, the director, the actor, everybody's free, and it got made. And um, just the whole process of putting it together was a pleasure in the sense that in this story, the truth obeys the rules of drama. Sure. So you don't have to stretch it. You don't have to exaggerate it. It's great. Well, and you've done a few films like this based on uh, historical material. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would imagine there is some you know, dramatic license. Of course. I mean, you have to... You can't... Chiefly because reality is so bizarre. 
the people wouldn't believe it. Sure. So you have to shave the edges off it a bit and make it more acceptable. And also things, you have to obey the rules of the narrative where you have to keep the story moving. So, you know, for example, his encounter with a prostitute in Santa Monica is based on the fact that he he was in South America, actually, and he decided to lose his virginity one day. Just decided. So he did, and then next day said, yeah, it was fine, but not as good as chess, you know. And I, and I just wanted that moment, but then I just replaced it and put it somewhere in the path of the narrative, if you like. That's, it's interesting, and that's a great example. I mean, it's a potentially difficult character mm. to sort of wrap your head around mm. and then put on the page. Mm. What, what was your process for that, or what is generally your process for approaching these more difficult characters? I think it, it's easy with this one because I chose to start with him as a child in mm-hmm. a very difficult environment. Now, if you have a child in a difficult environment retreating into himself, which is what he did... You understand that, and immediately I think you have sympathy for that character. And then when he begins to show, display all of these odd character traits later, you sort of know where it's from. And I think it's whether you use childhood or not, you need, I think, to get the audience into behind the eyes of the character as early as possible so that you understand why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. And if, I think if you understand why someone's doing it, it's much easier to forgive that the fact that they're doing it um, yeah. and so and then I think stay stay inside the characters as much as you can I mean you can go out and have scenes without them but it has to be about them you know you've got to stay with that character all the way yeah and, and again I mean I'll go back to this is a potentially difficult character mm. to even stay with I mean mm. he's not he doesn't tell us much about himself mm. no I, he I think that because he had so many things that if it were now, would have a series of initials attached to them. You know, yeah. he would have all sorts of diagnosis for what he wanted. And I believe that he did have many uh, mental problems. I mean, mm-hmm. he obviously did. But there's something about the ability to play chess which suggests that it's a different sort of mind. It's got a very <laughs> unusual... And in terms of chess ability, you'd have to say he's one in 300 million. Of course. So, therefore, he's going to have one in 300 million attributes as well that are not so good and I think that his amazing ability in this one area sort of excuses the way he is but also I think there is something endearing about him in reality I've watched Mm -hmm. a lot of um, footage of him being interviewed and there's this childlike quality about him where he just says what he means Mm -hmm. you know the way a kid will just tell you the truth Christmas present, I don't like it You know, (laughs) and he was like that and I think there is a childlike quality to him that saves the day sometimes when you get to surround him with these great other yeah, yeah. supporting characters mm, no, who no, react in that of way course, yeah, yeah. frustration yeah. and glee yeah, with him exactly. which is really fun um, how do you you know how do you keep the we've seen this kind of story mm-hmm. you know of these sort of beautiful brilliant yeah, yeah, heroes, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. how do you keep it from being one that we've seen a million times I think that or is that even in your head as you're writing not, I think the thing with this is that the character is great. It's a great character to depict, but the story is so solid, mm-hmm. and it's got a point. You know that, that, and there's something great about the fact that when he wins and destroys himself in the same moment, which he does. I mean, I think after this he was destroyed. In that moment, he's not on a windswept hill alone. 
He's the, and literally the whole world is watching. Everybody was watching. Everybody in the Soviet Union, everybody in America, Britain, Europe, everyone was watching that chess game. So it was an incredibly public event, but it was an intense personal moment at the same time. So that's there, that's given, that's history. So you can't really take credit for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, outside of the nostalgic factor for you that mm. seemed like that was sort of your mm. gateway yeah. to it uh, having watched all of this uh, material mm. is there is there an emotional story that you connect to is that I mean I mm. guess the bigger question is like what's your way into a mm. story does it come plot first does it come character, character first, first emotion yeah. first character first I think that, that here's this character who uh, is in a sense defenseless um, and his has a legacy. I'm always interested in people who leave a legacy that is unquestionably to the benefit of mankind. And this isn't in any practical sense, but intellectually to mm-hmm. the benefit of mankind. What? Do, how much can we forgive for someone who leaves that that legacy? You know, how often do we find out that someone who did wonderful work was a complete pig? In, in, you know, you find these things out, and you think, well, it's the personal and the public put against each other which is, this is all about but for me the way in was the kid I wrote a scene which isn't there anymore but because he spent some time in Arizona of a kid and it's a true true event that he was very young about eight I think and he was playing chess in his head and he walked in front of a train a desert so you couldn't miss the fact that there was a train coming it wasn't like a, a crossing in an urban <laughs> environment and he, he sat on a train line thinking about chess and the train's coming and his sister had to grab him and pull him on and that moment even though it's not in the film is like absolutely his story that he's so obsessed with this one thing he can't see the train coming at him mm-hmm. and other people have to save it so that was it you know, that's and that, that's the way in do you look for those keystone yeah, moments yeah. do you tend to script them or is it yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I, sort of intrinsic I think it's part. it's worth if you're looking at a life look, look at the moments that are part of history so they will be big moments but also if you look deep enough sometimes you'll hear you'll read some really odd little comment about that person and it's really interesting to take that odd little comment and build on it mm-hmm. because you go in somewhere where no, it's like with Wilberforce with um, Amazing Grace the fact that he had a house full of animals rabbits cats mice that ran free that completely run free. It's just a footnote somewhere yeah. that somebody said it was a bit of annoying because he had rabbits everywhere. <laughs> and you think, what? You know, here's this politician and this statesman. He's got rabbits climbing all over him. So that's the thing that I think gets you in to a character rather than what people know already. Oh, sure. And it, it feels like, having watched uh, Peaky Blinders now, it feels like that is a show that is made up of those moments. Yes, absolutely. Like every scene yeah. is this small... Yeah telling piece about about the character yeah it's it's because i think you know it's good to to have um the character overwhelm the incident if you like not overwhelm it but the incident isn't the thing it's how people react to the incident that's the thing then you really are making people look at the character i would imagine especially in tv there's yeah there's a different storytelling mode oh yeah i mean tv's great i love it and it's (laughs) I mean, obviously it's a new thing but uh, you know the amount of time you get and the amount of time you can have a character be unsympathetic before you rescue them Mm -hmm. is much greater than in a film because the time restriction of course 
me. Uh, and you came up in TV, right? Yeah, I mean, originally I was doing uh, TV, comedy, yeah. drama, and then game shows as well. Which is hilarious to me. So know. you were a co-creator of Who, Who Wants, Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yes. Yeah. Are you sick of talking about this? No, not at all. <laughs> it, it, it sort of, when I first started coming here to LA, it was like... I was, you know, my introduction would be he's the person who right. co-created <laughs> now it's gone away a bit but I mean I'm really proud of it I think it's sure. great it was good fun the whole thing. and it was really a phenomenon oh, for know, so yeah. long but was. you had been doing like you say TV comedy uh, and writing oh, what I was doing I was doing uh, two different computers if you like <laughs> one for TV and stuff and one for novels because I was writing novels oh, as well oh interesting and then one of the novels um, the fourth novel was going to be a novel and as I started writing it, I thought it'd be better as a screenplay. So, hmm. and that was the Dirty Pretty Thing. So that was sure. the first one. Really um, is is there a difference? What is that difference to you in the storytelling process? Well, I mean, novels are brutally uh, brutal <laughs> in terms of you've got to do it all. You've got to get everything, you know. And I quite like the screenplay. It started off because I was writing a novel in the present tense. Hmm. I think that was part of the problem. Or the goodness Um, and when writing in the present tense you start to feel like a camera Mm -hmm. you know he's walking he's doing this he's doing it's not you're looking at the past you're looking at it now so you're you're watching someone and then immediacy yeah and then it felt well if it's a camera I might as well do it as a screenplay you know uh, and were you comfortable in the screenplay format obviously again yeah I mean I didn't have final draft or anything at the time so I was doing it in a really unreadable way um Funny. But what, uh, did, what did that script look like? It was just like, it was the ordinary, I suppose now it'd be called Word, but it was like the name and then the dialogue, then the name and the dialogue. Uh, so sure, sure. it made it very difficult to read. But um, no, I loved it because the thing that I most like writing is dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's great. I like to write dialogue and then hear it. Good, which is better than <laughs> which yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you don't get that with enough. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I do want to actually get into some of this. Have you always been a writer? Yeah, I mean, I started. I wanted to be a writer since <coughs> I was about eleven. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. And what What was it? What was the stuff you were? I think if reading, you, listening to, watching that sort of yeah I was, made you realize um, that, that I watched, this could be an occupation. Watched a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. It was always on in the house. What was the stuff that was on around there? There was only two channels, three channels in the UK, but yeah. it was comedy, and also ad commercials because I started off writing commercials. Mm. But you, as a kid, you learn the tune of commercial. You know the way <laughs> an ad has a sort of da 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 and it's you learn the tune. Uh, and I had an older brother who bought second-hand books of all sorts in, so complete weird books. At <laughs> um, and it just gave me, it made me think that novels were the thing. Um, and studied English literature at university and then got into radio, which is, mm-hmm. I, I would recommend to anybody starting out. It's just great. It's such a disciplined medium because yeah. it's just the word. Were you doing scripted radio? Were you scripted doing, radio uh, and. Which um, in the UK is yeah. even still. Oh, yeah, you can there. still get it. I mean, Don't do it here. No, I mean, you get paid about £5. <laughs> right. But, you, you know, but I was also doing radio commercials. So. Mm. That again is like you've got to get all this information into these thirty yeah. seconds of dialogue. So what a great crash course! It is a crash course actually, um, and then TV, and then you know books. And but for someone who loves writing dialogue, to be writing, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, these radio scripts. Oh yeah, it was phenomenal. It was. It was good. Fun. Um, 
what did you learn in that time? I mean, you you can study mm. at university all you yeah, want, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's something to actually doing. Yeah, I think with radio, um, what you're trying to do is is tell more, have words do more than tell than than the weight of their meaning. There's got to be something more to it than that, which is the voice and and playing around with the way people actually speak. So like if you if you look ever look at a transcript of a real conversation, it's so weird. It goes all over the place, and things get said. And playing with the idea of people saying the opposite to what they mean, often, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and also, uh, you know, just tricks like. Sometimes, if you're writing a scene, swap the dialogue around the characters and see what happens if you give that person the dialogue. Because sometimes it can really trigger something. It's like suddenly that character has known something all along, and you have to then you have to go back. Then you have to go back and reverse engineer it. But in that moment, it can be great. That's really interesting. Um, Was the transition to television an easy one for you? Yeah, I mean TV. at the time, it, we were getting BBC. We had quite good budgets for stuff, so and good actors. In, in you know, you, you can um, do some good stuff there. But um, I think I always felt the destined. I, at the time, I felt novels was the thing, and then I felt screenplays are the thing. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, with what's happening in television, because it's changed so much, television as well as film. Yeah, but, but I feel like. Um, did, did did you write sketch comedy? Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I wrote stand up as well. Um, oh, really? How was oh, that? But that was so weird because <laughs> I started off writing for not the new generation of mm-hmm. comedians. It was the old generation, the old yeah. post-war stand-ups who were the they, they mean nothing over here. But the, people like Ken Dodd and Frankie Howard, who were the most surreal hmm. people. You know, the, the the new wave comedians were. Being labelled surreal and cutting edge and stuff, but you hear these old people, and they were so funny, and they were so honed. And that was the other thing about these people; they would, and that's the other thing about comedy. Actually, I ended up writing. There's one particular comedian, and we would spend the afternoon writing the material. Then he'd go out and try it. This is in preparation for a TV series, so he'd try it in front of a live audience. And what it it's what anybody who's ever told a joke in a pub knows, mm. is that if you tell a joke and you make a mistake and you fluff it, even once, the audience have gone. They'd, nobody laughs. Mm-hmm. And with comedy, you have to get it absolutely right. And these old comedians would have their patter so honed that the pause would be the same, yeah. the intonation would be the same, it would be identical every single night because they knew... That unless they did that pause between those two words, no one would laugh. Yeah. And and this one, this comedian said, you can get to a point where people are responding so well that you can make them that you can, as long as it's worded and the rhythm is still the same, they won't even notice it's not a joke. Like he said, yeah. he said, say anything. I said, okay. There's a brand of car called a Ford Sierra. If, I don't want to hear as well, but he, uh, I said, okay, at some point just say, my brother-in-law drives a Ford Sierra. I said, okay. okay. So he gets them going, 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 then he says, my brother-in-law drives a Ford Sierra. The place he runs. <laughs> you know, and it was like, that co- comedy oh teaches God. you the importance of 
the rhythm of the thing and the, the gaps and the you know just getting it right because I think jokes are a great way of communicating certain things because people they have dialogue in them they have beginning middle and end mm -hmm. they have surprise they have all of that stuff sometimes within 20 seconds yeah. so they're really valuable and it, it's amazing I mean it sounds like such a natural progression from the sort of advertising mm. or sketch or mm. radio things mm. uh, especially ads that they yeah. have that same thing absolutely right? yeah and it's it's trying to um, I think it's knowing the importance of, of um, you can you can make the dialogue really messy and it as long as it sounds messy in the way that people are messy, then right. it's all right. Yeah, absolutely. It's messy but not confusing. Yeah, exactly. Messy yeah. but recognizable. Yeah. yeah. Um, it sounds like you have a great mind for structure. Is that something that always came easily? Um, I, I don't really... I, I, def, I don't ever map the thing out in mm -hmm. advance um, unless it's a commission for a studio when you have to do right. a treatment. But always I would say, and say to the studio, that this may not bear any resemblance necessarily to what's going to happen. And you get away with that? Sort of. I mean, <laughs> they go, yeah, yeah, fine, anyway, yeah, do that. Right. <laughs> um, but the, um, I prefer to just start and just write and mm -hmm. see what happens. So you um, do have that, it's a really all a discovery process yeah, for Yeah, because I think that's the only way to keep it, keep it fresh, because I think if you know at the beginning what's going to happen at the end, except with this, it was the other way around. I knew what was happening at the end, I didn't know what was going to sure. happen at the beginning. Um, then I think it keeps it fresh, and it keeps, especially if you. I mean, I try to. Um, you know, if there's a, a diff, if sometimes you read you write reading it back, and think, oh god, this is just going one, two, three, you know, four, five, six. Yeah. Counting in the boxes. That's that that. And I always think it's good to. Um, there was a, a philosopher called Edward de Bono who talked, I went to a talk of his and um, he was talking about creativity and said if, if you're on a journey from somewhere you know to somewhere you've never been before it gets more and more difficult mm -hmm. and you're more likely to get lost because you're going away if you're starting a journey from somewhere that you, you don't know and you're going home it gets progressively easier yeah. and then you're less likely to get lost and he said in creativity if you let's say it's chess you're writing a story about chess think of something that's nothing to do with chess think of hmm. um, I don't know anything a prawn so okay you've got a prawn you're going to start with a prawn and if it's a, it's a shot of a prawn what am I going to do with a shot of a prawn and get to chess then you have to think well, think of something you know and then whatever you think that journey back to chess will get easier as you go but also it will begin in a way that people are not expecting and it may lead to all sorts of things and in the end the prawn probably disappears and it almost certainly does but it got you somewhere you wouldn't normally be that's really interesting yeah I mean, and I think it does work it, it sounds I mean again to kind of pick out these threads mm. it sounds like the same sort of puzzle solving yeah exactly you've been talking yeah. about I mean it's, it's almost pretending to yourself that you've solved it already mm -hmm. with this that's odd funny. thing and then you can relax them, and then you can get on, get on with moving the story along. So when you're working on, I mean, you're working on six, seven scripts at a time, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. But when you're working on a couple of scripts, what is your, this is a deep process mm. question, what does your day look like? Uh, I start early um, and find that I'm pretty 
good for nothing by about two or three. <laughs> sure. Um, and I, I, how early is early? Depends if I'm here. It's like three a.m. because of the jet lag. Sure. Um, but I'm six or something. Mm-hmm. And when it's nice and quiet, and um, try and stick to one project over a period of a, two weeks or something, and get really, really into it. Yeah. Um, I always. If I'm writing the script, I always, at the start of the day, start at the beginning and start reading the whole thing. Really? Yeah, because otherwise... I think it's like a, it's like music. You've got to get the rhythm of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And if you Do read you it, revise as you go? Oh, yeah, I know, read? and it sounds like... A, and it is a nightmare, because <laughs> you can get to the end of the day and you've not reached where you got to yesterday. Exactly. But I don't think you have to worry about that as, in terms of progress, because the only problem is if you run out of time, then you're less and less the end is less dealt with but I think as you go through especially if you have a day off if you miss it for a day and then you go back to it things go clang why the fuck did I do why did I do that no no you may Um, (laughs) and then you can sort it out but I think it's always worth that because then by the time you get to like the coal face the bit where you've got to carry on you're really into it you know you know the rhythm You know what you've been living to. with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but then it just must take you forever. It, yeah, it, it, it sort of does. But I think um, then when you get into the, you're doing the new stuff, really go with it. Mm-hmm. You know, really just wrap through it. And, because and it's both, exciting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's good fun. And you can't do it quick enough, you know, really banging it on. That makes sense. So you do do big chunks, I think, that way. But you, I think I very rarely start where I left off. So you can start uh, early in the morning, and do you mm-hmm. tend to work straight through till yeah. two, three o'clock? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then are you done, or yes, what done. happens after that? I'm always yeah. curious. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, it's just because, um, <laughs> and I do suffer with if I haven't done something, mm-hmm. I feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, I feel as if you know I've earned that day. Sure. Well, it's such a fake occupation anyway. I know, right? but, and it is discipline, but I, I never feel that it's discipline because I usually, unless it's very unusual that I'm working on a project that I think, oh god. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so there are ways you can just get yourself into it, you know, and get mm-hmm. yourself to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, what are some of those ways? I'm curious. But the ways of getting in. Um, yeah, I mean, because obviously, look, you, you have this enormous CV, you've written a lot of films, a lot of television. There must be stuff that you felt like, oh, I have to do this today. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are occasions, that, but mercifully few. But I, I, I think um, you have to. The only occasion that it's ever been like is, is when sometimes I used to do studio rewrites, so you're mm-hmm. dealing with something that's a given. That's difficult. But when, if you've been given a task, just give yourself some characters that you enjoy, because <laughs> then you'll keep yourself going. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. That makes sense. Mm. Um, let's talk about... Uh, so... so uh, let's talk about the detectives. <laughs> I don't know anything about this. Yeah. Have you seen it? Have you I have not it? seen it. Oh, it's right. not available here anywhere. Um, but it seems terrific. It's all I yeah. want in a TV show. <laughs> it's it's funny. I mean, it was early days, and we had a lot of fun making it. And it's a, I mean, it's about two policemen who are completely incompetent and mm-hmm. busy with other things as they accidentally deal with crime. Yeah. And um, the, be, the best compliment was the assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police so the second in command of the London Police Force was asked on a radio station 
which TV... I mean, there were loads of really good right. TV shows, like The Bill and all these things that showed the, 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 you know, the gritty world. So which show most accurately reflects life <laughs> as a policeman? He said The Detectives. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> Uh, did this grow out of relationships with these comedians? Yeah, the, the stand-up comedian Jasper Carrot, who um, is uh, is great, and we did stand-up for him, and then we did a lot of TV shows, and then within the TV shows there was this one segment called The Detectives, which then okay. became a series. Um, and and was it a? Um, that, this was your first TV series, right? Uh, you kind of worked on others. Yeah, we'd done a lot of stand-up, we'd done a lot of comedy. Yeah, it was the first series. Yeah. yeah. So that's, you know, that's asking for quite a bit more work. Yeah. Um, what what was the first order, do you remember? We did six, I think we ended up doing six series of six. Okay, and so, so was it sort of the traditional uh, half hour, BBC yeah. model, yeah, though, yeah. where you sit yeah. down and write all yes, six? Exactly. And it was you and partners? Yeah, basically. Mike Weissel, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so you sit down, you write all six, and then yeah. you go and shoot them. Yes, um, hi. Have you worked in the other way? Have you worked in the uh, US way where no. you're playing catch-up? No. That, the first series of Peaky Blinders was, um, I think we were shooting when I was finishing. Okay. That was six episodes. But it was towards the end. Yeah, so exactly. It was, yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's still fully formed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, I imagine there's obviously a great freedom in that mm. because you're not playing catch-up. It's yeah. this movie yeah. train. Yeah. But you're also not in production, so mm. you're... Are you changing things on the fly when you do go to production? Yeah, a bit, yeah. I mean, with that, it didn't matter because we didn't really care about it. <laughs> and it didn't have a continuity because yeah. each week was a new story. Right. It wasn't, you know, it didn't follow on. So you didn't a have to worry about... traditional sitcom. Exactly. You didn't have to worry about, oh, hang on a minute, that character's pregnant. Why is that happening? <laughs> right. um, so it was very free-form in that sense. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was... Funnily enough, it was one of the. They didn't change a word. Really? Do you know what I mean? They That's didn't change for a word. Comedy, I know. Too. They didn't. And when I think. Yeah, and he sort of gave me the wrong impression. He <laughs> said, well, yeah, okay, that's what I wrote, that's what I'm going to say, that's it. You know. Has it not been that way? <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, I have to, you know, I've worked with such great directors and, and mm-hmm. great actors that it has been pretty much like that, but, you know, obviously there's always room for change. Right. What is, I mean, making television here is such an enormously, immediately collaborative yeah. process. But what mm-hmm. is the role of the writer in the UK system? Well, for me, I mean, Peaky Blinds, I wrote all of it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you wrote it, and then, as you say, you were starting production yeah. as you were wrapping up, yeah. writing that first season. Um, and did you direct the first episode? No, 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 I didn't. I haven't directed it. I might direct one or two of them at some point, but... Okay. Um, no, so you I mean, had other directors coming yes, in exactly. and doing pre-production yeah. on your yeah, existing exactly. scripts. Yeah. What was your voice in this outside of the existing Well, it's script? so opposite to film, that's the thing. And I've sort of got used to film mm-hmm. so much, but with TV, you know, in one series you have two directors uh, and they they do a job, you know, and which is great. And that's the way, I think it's the same here, you know, the director mm-hmm. comes in and does it. And the writer is, you know, it's the writer's medium, um, which obviously for a writer is fantastic. <laughs> it's great. Um, but... It, it is collaborative. I think it, I, I don't know how a writer's room works, mm-hmm. but I, it, it's not something I can do really. I don't know why. Really? I don't know why. And I, I wonder does a writer's room in the end 
is it one person is doing it all or is it, you know I, I think with comedy it's absolutely feasible because each you know trigger for the laughter is a moment in itself and you could put seven people could put seven different of those together and it would work as long as they were all familiar with the characters right but with drama I don't know how you do that how do you punctuate it it's I find that well so much of it just in having these conversations I've learned mm. so much of it is about breaking that story yeah and it seems like if you're someone who likes to discover the story yeah well. it would be more difficult and it's also you know if you with Peaky Blinders it's different because I'm it's it's personal possession for me and mm-hmm. um, it's not that anybody else's thing would be worse it's just different to what I was thinking of and therefore Sure. You can't do it. <laughs> no, it's really it's difficult for a lot yeah, of yeah. people who have yeah. worked independently yeah. to step into a writing exactly. room. And mm. The you know studios are realizing that yeah. only recently. Yeah. Um, was Peaky Blinder sort of done in the same way as the feature scripts? Where yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really feel that there should be any difference. That, and it's, I'm just finishing the third series now, mm-hmm. and I'm going through all six as if it's a six-hour film, mm-hmm. but with an obligation at the end of each hour to give something right. that's going to keep people... Well, and, and this is something you obviously you know how to do. Yeah, yeah. You don't work on that. Um, were there things you learned from that first series that you're applying, that you applied to two and three? Yeah, budget. It's, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a big budget and it's finding ways it to... Looks it. Oh, so it looks tremendous. Oh, it looks beautiful. Yeah, it does. Um, but, the, you know, it's, it's finding ways of saving the budget um, especially locations and you know you have restrictions that you don't have in film where okay, I'm going to have to put that in not that location that location because we need that we're going to get rid of that one we're just right. going to keep that and we're going to need a horse but, so, yeah, but sometimes if you, if you treat it with the, you know, a bit of humour then um, the fact that suddenly this thing is taking place in a barber shop or whatever mm-hmm. you can you, you know it's it's, it's like the, the one example I would give is that um, in the second series I had the character of Alfie Solomons in a bakery mm-hmm. a real bakery no baking bread and then they said um, we, bakery's gonna be, we've got this uh, we, could, we could convert or we could shoot in such a way that this rum cellar would look like a bakery and I thought well what about if it is a rum cellar and he pretends it's a bakery <laughs> and he calls it bread but it's actually rum, you know. And suddenly, there's an opportunity there to do something that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't have been for that location problem. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff you get in television, right? yeah, yeah. but you will never get yeah. in film. Yeah. Uh, I did want to ask another question about the collaboration. Mm. I mean, you've worked with some really terrific directors mm. on a lot of these features, no. yeah, yeah. Uh, Apted and Cronenberg yeah. and Lassa Hellstrom. Um, what are those collaborations like? Again, how much of a voice does the writer have on you? Well, it's always different. I think um, with... Has there been an ideal for you? They're all good. It sounds bad. They're good in their own way, depending on how you want to look at it. Because, mm-hmm. for example, Frears, Stephen Frears wants you there all the time. And he's so friendly to the writer. You know, because he can shout at people on the set and he's like, and then he goes, is that all right? You know, to the writer. <laughs> and everybody's you teacher's pet, you know. Um, so you're always out at the monitor with him. But with Cronenberg, you come and go, it's, it's not important. Mm. But he's very good with the script. He doesn't, he doesn't treat it as a blueprint. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't say something like that. He does that. He right. Does it. 
Um, Mike Lapton's the nicest man in the world, and that was really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Well, that was your first feature, right? No, second? that second is oh, uh, Dirty Pretty Things. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that must have been an unbelievable experience. <laughs> what, the... Uh, dirty Pretty Things. Dirty Pretty Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it was... I was new to all of it. And yeah. Again, it was a... Uh, it gave me the wrong impression when I first <laughs> did it because I wrote it and then some people liked it and it was around and then I was told Stephen Frears was interested so I went to meet him in this sort of place in Nottingham's cafe and he said uh, yeah I really like it but can you make the ending better anyway that right. was the note <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I thought oh that's what a note <laughs> session is oh right and oh, then I only learned subsequently but yeah he's, that's what he and apparently he does that all the time he just says yeah. Make this better. Make the ending. So better. what do you do with that? Just think, okay, we'll make it better then. <laughs> it just makes you look at it again and think, yeah. oh, yeah, he's got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, uh, how has Notes process been for you, especially as you're doing more of these US-based yeah. films, which I feel like have yeah. just so many more hands in them? Yeah. I don't know. You have to accept it because you, you, you sign a contract, you know what the deal right. is, and it's a different... You know, if you're a, I don't know, if you're a tailor, somebody comes in and says, I want a wedding dress and somebody else comes in and says I want a dark suit you do something different with each one but uh, you know it's a it's a process you go through um, sometimes it's painful sometimes it's, it's good but you know you you get the situation where lot, as you say lots of people have a say and sometimes you know sometimes it feels as if it would be better to have one voice, do you know what I mean? And, sure. and then to do something, because I think that there is a tendency to try and make everything quite. I have nothing but respect for people who make big budget films because it's much more difficult than making art house films. <laughs> and intellectually more difficult. I really believe that because I think if you're making art house, you can make mistakes and people don't notice. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to do big budget, those audiences are tough. You know, the people who watch those and you make a mistake, they'll know it because it's broken the pattern. You know, the, the, the thing that is supposed to be there isn't there. And they get it straight away and they condemn it and that's it, it's gone. Yeah, I guess there is, there's a different expectation. Yeah. But it's an expectation of delivering something familiar, isn't it? It is. And, but what I'm saying is delivering the familiar, just because it's familiar, is still difficult. It's like when I was working yeah. in commercial television doing game shows. Mm-hmm. You know, trash telly people would say. And you'd think, hang on a minute, it's really difficult to get that right. To get a game show right is so hard. And I think, I mean, they're not my cup of tea at all, but the big blockbuster films, um, you know, my kids, and uh, they love it, and, but they know the rules. And right. I do think that it's, it, it isn't for me, but hmm. there's, there's um, I think films are changing. Was it? I watched Godzilla, I think. <laughs> and what I think's happening is that kids play a lot of games. They play a lot of computer games, and... In a computer game, you don't have... You certainly don't have a three-act structure. You don't even have an arc. Of course you don't. You have your hero who confronts one problem, wins, goes to the next one, with no reference to what happened before, mm-hmm. apart from maybe an accumulation of points or whatever. The next one, the next one, the next one. And in reality, it actually starts to resemble Greek myth, <laughs> where you have your sure. unchanging hero... They never change, you know, they are what they are. They have that encounter, they go on to the next one, then the next one, the next one, the next one. And films, I think, are starting to reflect that 
straight line approach where you get somebody who isn't going to change, who goes through these things and in the end succeeds. Is this good for us? No. <laughs> well, it's not good for me. I mean, for, for I think maybe for younger people, the idea of the three acts, maybe they, they think that's... We, yeah, we know that. You know? Mm-hmm. We know that's going to happen. We know he's going to win. So let's enjoy right. the victory. You know right. what I mean? It's making those small yeah. moments as yeah. interesting as they can yeah, be. Exactly. It's fighting the minotaur, yeah, yeah. exactly. getting through. Yeah. And they love it, but I mean, that's, I can't bear it. Uh, but there's something to, I mean, look at the, the I wouldn't say the type of film you're making, because mm. they're all, they're pretty wildly different. Mm. But, you know, a, a lot of them are these sort of uh, prestige studio movies. Mm. And those come with expectations, too. Mm. Of course, and, and it is difficult to do. And I mean, I, I don't think. Um, apart from Locke, um, which I thought was the most experimental of the lot, we'll get into that. All right, <laughs> but the the yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the tricky middle ground where you're trying to you're trying to tell a story and you're trying to tell it in a way that's interesting and, and respectful of of the actors and the characters and all of that, and also get an audience. You know? Yeah, you, you want people to come and see it, but um, and it is. It is difficult, but what, what I'm saying is, it, it's not to underestimate the difficulty of making those big films yeah. because even you know, there's a kind of snobbery because they're so popular, but they're bloody hard to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, any writing is pretty hard to do, mm. successful. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about Locke. Um, it, it certainly is an outlier <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in your list of credits, but it is the one that, mm. from the time it came out, mm. everyone was telling me I had to go see this uh, movie. It's an amazing effect. Um, where did this even come from? What? I've just finished uh, a more conventional um, film, which was great fun to do with Jason Statham, mm-hmm. and that was great, and it was a... It wasn't conventional in plot, but it was conventionally made. Mm-hmm. And this was Redemption. Redemption. That you wrote and directed. Yes, and it was like brutally hard, and and, and I just thought uh, during that process, I thought, is there a way, another way of getting people into a room, turn off the lights, and have them look at a screen for ninety minutes and be engaged with it, and strip it right down so you get rid of everything apart from the performance. And the, and the story, yeah. and that's it. And how he can do it. So I thought, well, he can't be stunned, so he's got to be in a calm. I like the idea of the birth of the baby being destructive and creative at the same time. And I, I, funny enough, with that as well, I knew the ending of someone hearing a baby cry. Hmm. And his life's been destroyed. He sets off at this end with everything and arrives with nothing, and then a baby cries. So that was the. And then just the, well, the most straightforward way to do it is put some cameras in the car and have him have him drive and, and I had a meeting Tom Hardy wanted to meet about a television thing called Taboo which we've now done and the deal was you know he wanted me to write the first two episodes and, and he was parking his car so he was a bit <laughs> late so I spoke to his manager and said during this process can I also mention this film idea that I've got it should be very simple and sort of and we got talking about both and in the end we did a deal where I would do these first two if he would do lock. <laughs> So that's what happened. That's really funny. Yeah. You basically blackmailed him. Yes, exactly. Film. Absolutely. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I feel you've worked with him a few times now, mm. and I feel like you find an actor yeah. who delivers your yeah, yeah. words in a way exactly. that you want. Um, yeah. How was that freeing to write for someone like that? Well, I think the, the thing with him is he's so... 
different all the time. I, I, we did some publicity for Lock, and we were in a radio station in New York, and the DJ opened the mic and said, "Okay, I'm in. Uh, I'm in the studio with uh, Tom Hardy. I have Tom Hardy in front of me, and I still don't know what he looks like." It feels that way. It really does. The you know, it's always he gives a lot. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's just so. He's so good. Well, let me ask you about that character. Mm. I mean, this is you know going into this that you're going to hang a movie on mm. one character yeah, yeah. essentially. Um, it was a bit I mean I was having done one film, I I sort of thought I'm going to do the opposite to everything mm-hmm. that you normally have to do almost as a re- reaction against it. So I'm going to have a character who I know what I want to do is create the most ordinary man in Britain. Mm-hmm. That was the ambition. So he's going to have two kids. He's going to have a job in construction. He's, he's going to wear jumpers and he's, he gives money to the lifeboat fund and all. And it was completely the most ordinary man in the world. And something's going to happen to him that won't even make the local paper. He wouldn't. Doesn't. It's not an event at all. Nobody's going to get shot. There's not going to be any car chases. Nothing. It's going to be just in the car, and it's going to be something that could happen to anybody. And give him a job that is concrete. You know, make it the least interesting material in the world. It's nothing. It's just this. That did feel very deliberate. <laughs> yeah. It's just like let's. So okay, can we make a film out of ordinary man, not much happening, concrete? Mm. And you know that was the the ambition, and to sort of try and do an anti-film if you want. That's really interesting, and and it works. I mean, it yeah, people. It, I know it shouldn't. It, I, but I it didn't plays know, like a thriller. I didn't know whether it would, and then we showed it to people and they started really responding especially here actually really I went to um, I did I sort of did a publicity tour with it and yeah. it was always somebody you imagine a middle aged man had been dragged to it somebody had said it's a man in a car <laughs> and they were the ones that would come up afterwards and say that was very close to home it was like people wow. who things had happened to them you know there'd been pregnancies sure. there'd been skeletons in the cupboard a lot of people said that was my dad my dad didn't make that phone call Wow. It really was amazing. I was really shocked. Salt Lake City was like, you know, I thought, oh, God, they're going to hate this. But they, they, again, about three blokes came up and said, oh, it's very close to home. Wow. Well, it's that, that thing that I feel like you were talking about at the beginning of finding that those emotionally resonant moments. Yeah. And, you know, they're at once very specific to your mm. characters and help mm. form every scene. Yeah. But they're also universal. And I think, I mean, the other motivation was the idea that in everybody's life, there is an incident which could be a movie, mm-hmm. no matter who they are. That's interesting. Yeah, you yeah. could make a film of that. Um, it's funny, I mean, hearing you describe the process of writing that film, mm. you're, you're looking at these ingredients, right? Yeah. Of doing the opposite. And yeah, exactly. It is more puzzle-solving for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that formality seems to be a, a great way in for you. Mm. Uh, so we're looking at, like, you have, you have a bunch of things in the works right now. Yeah. Um, including the World War Z sequel. Yes, absolutely, which is good fun. Again, that's you know that that's a fun. different process, and yeah. it's studio, and uh, you have to approach it with that in mind and, and do what you do um, and see what happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got um, the other Brad Pitt films start mm-hmm. shooting January 27th. That's great. That sounds really fun. Um, Cotillard, which would be great. Yeah, uh, and that's the World War Two. yes. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Really fun. 
Uh, and then November Criminals? Are you November Criminals is... I don't know when it's out, but it's shot and it's... Okay. The first cut is... I haven't seen it. I'm open to see it when I'm here. I really enjoyed that book. Yeah, it's and amazing, honey. It's a great book. It seems like it would be a difficult film, though. Well, I think it anyway. works. I think it works. The, the, what I've seen, because um, Chloe Moretz is mm-hmm. brilliant. I mean, really good. So, from what I've seen so far it's really hanging together really well how did the script come was it a um, difficult process it was sort of it because the the book obviously isn't structured like a film so it was a question of again taking that there is a structure within there that could be a film and then taking that out and doing that and just making it a bit more it's a bit like dealing with reality it was taking the the sure. bumps away some. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm. Uh, we'll finish up as we always do by asking you, what are you watching? What movies are getting you excited? Television? What are you reading? I don't... I'm a terrible <laughs> viewer of anything. Really? I, I don't really... I mean, my experience of going to... Uh, cinemas I don't like just because I don't like being in the cinema, but, um, you know, you see a film and it's really good and you think, why can't I do that? <laughs> you know, or you see a film and it's not really good and you think, why am I here? Right. <laughs> Um, but you don't like going to the cinema? Just the, the physical thing, of, and theatre as well. But Let's talk about this. <laughs> I can't, but you know, if you're watching something and someone starts talking, I just want to leave, because I think somebody has spent all this time doing that. Somebody has laboured, good or bad, as they have worked hard, because it's up there on the screen. So I can't bear that. But I, this is my bead, my bonnet, which I want to do something <laughs> about, is... The only area of this industry that's not been reformed in the past hundred years is cinemas, mm-hmm. and some people love them. Some people love that experience, but it hasn't been changed. No. And I just think people should have access to original movies in different environments. Mm-hmm. In environments where, you know, what I learned with Locke was after the screening, people stay and want to talk about the film, mm-hmm. and they love it. You don't get that opportunity normally, and I think there's got to be a tier of of a film watching where you're in a place where people can have a drink mm-hmm. they watch the film the film ends and they talk about the film you know I'm not sure that does exist but I'm talking about right. there being a chain widespread of those yeah it, it feels like it is becoming more I'm sure it widespread I'm I mean sure. like the Alamo Draft House yeah, yeah. model yeah. or a lot of the repertory theatres yeah but yeah to have these new films or even yeah. smaller films yeah and I think that would create a demand for Interesting low yeah. budget films. The ones that are missing yeah, right exactly. now because we're getting exactly. more Godzilla's and more exactly. of these video game movies. Yeah, exactly. That's very interesting. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for taking no the problem. time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Fantastic. Uh, when does the movie come out? Remind us. Uh, Fun um, Sacrifice. Prawn, uh, it, uh, when's the premiere? <laughs> I think it's September the 9th. Okay, around the time yeah, this yeah, comes yeah. out. Yeah. Look for it, you guys. You'll enjoy it. Uh, thank you again. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.